Okay, this is chapter three, Biosphere. I'm not doing the full reading today. I don't have enough time, but I will be going through some chapter notes just as a review um, in preparation for recitation number three, which is my assigned recitation, three and four. So uh, these notes are a compilation of SNL chapter three, as well as uh, our lectures and added content associated with Blackboard. So chapter three, Biosphere. There's a seemingly sudden burst of life around 544 to 570 million years ago, but the evidence up to 1.2 billion years ago has been observed for evidence of life. That's on page 64. The reason I picked this out is because the date of when we think life started has been getting pushed back further and further, and it also ties into the question of like the definition of life. What is it, right? Is, is the evidence of a metabolism enough to be able to generate this true life condition. So all life that we're aware of has biochemical similarities and there are differences in those metabolic pathways, but fundamentally the structure of the metabolic pathways are similar. So you have autotrophic versus heterotrophic. The autotrophic is the plants and kind of the basis of life. So this is the variability in the tree of life and the heterotrophic are all kind of set up the same though obviously they're different animals. So autotrophic seems to have the more diverse uh, strategies for nutrient consumption and metabolism, whereas heterotrophic have the similar pathways, but obviously very different expressions of those pathways. So these metabolic possibilities for cellular nutrition are focused on energy sources, the substances that donate electrons, and the compounds that supply carbon, because remember we're always working with carbon compounds as the basis of life. So a couple types of, of energy sources, we're looking at photo versus chemotrophs, we're looking at electron donors that are litho or organotrophs, and again this will come into play particularly with fungus, uh, because fungi have this amazing uh, diversity of selection, right? They can do kind of all of these activities with very different chemicals of, of interest which is one of the reasons I picked them for my master's thesis is because they have just this tremendous um, variety of metabolic pathways. So most bacteria, all fungi, most animals are chemoorganotrophs. They gain ATP by oxidation reduction reactions. Many chemoorganotrophic bacteria use nitrates or sulfates as electron acceptors. I added this because of course we're working with that for wastewater. So our chemoorganotrophs Trophic bacteria are the primary nitrifiers and methanogens that will be important for wastewater treatment. And those are electron acceptors. Chemolithotrophs may exist in complete absence of any light and all organic matter. They seem to only need carbon dioxide plus an electron acceptor like oxygen, CO2 itself, or nitrate. Now I thought this was important because we're talking about chemolithotrophs that don't need light and that don't need organic matter and can oxidize, can accept electrons from oxygen. So the only common factor would seem to be CO2. And we're gonna discuss some cases where CO2 isn't even required, where carbon monoxide might be required. So again, when we're talking about the definition of life, it seems like you have to be really specific about that definition and it can change depending on the context that you're working with. So obviously it's not a complete definition, right? So nitrifying sulfur and methanogenic archaea are the biosphere's most important chemolithotrophs. 
those uh, creatures really activate kind of the fundamental um, cycles, the biogeochemical cycles of the earth, right? So that's why they're so important. And I included them because wastewater treatment, right? We deal with those every day. So photosynthesis, this is the primary shaper of the biosphere. This is the archaean version of the world shaper, right? It is a mechanism that underlies the photolysis of water and is the true central enigma of photosynthesis. The central enigma of photosynthesis is the photolysis of water, and that's on page 65 to 66. So this is interesting, right? Photosynthesis is how the world functions. It is the fundamental structure of the biosphere, but we actually don't really understand how it works. We don't understand how you can get... Um, you know, energy from essentially nothing. So this evidence of photosynthesis started about 3.5 to 3.8 billion years ago. And I included Heliobacter because it is the last common ancestor of all photosynthetic lineages. So it's the earliest tie back to our very first photosynthetic ancestors. And it's also a gut bacteria, right? So we have these ancient um, genus and species kind of living in us all the time. So Heliobacter, uh, is one of the uh, stomach bacteria that can cause ulcers, I believe. All phototropic bacteria can photoassimilate such simple organic substrates as acetate or butyrate. Um, and these are, CO2 is preferred, but um, any organic substrate, you know, along the lines of acetate or butyrate may be, may be used. Again, this goes back to the definition of life. So anoxic photosynthesis under aerobic conditions is possible. They can grow heterotrophically. They can use bacterial chlorophyll to harvest light when needed. And remember, anoxygenic photosynthesis under aerobic conditions. So that means that even in the presence of oxygen, they can create photosynthetic processes without using oxygen. So that was a little bit of a tricky statement, right? Because anoxygenic photosynthesis under aerobic conditions doesn't make a lot of sense because aerobic conditions, you have oxygen, but you're using anoxygenic photosynthesis. So I think the important part of that is you can have a photosynthetic process without oxygen, even in the presence of oxygen, which is important, right? If we're looking for life on other planets, not having free oxygen or, or carbon dioxide may be, a, may be an environmental condition, but we shouldn't exclude potential uh, photosynthetic processes from that. So this, this requires a bacterial chlorophyll uh, light harvesting system. So there will have to be some evidence of bacterial chlorophyll. And we'll talk a little bit about chlorophyll and the, um, not mesenchymal, what do you call it? Mitochondrial uh, DNA, because those are like subsumed creatures within other creatures. So it goes back to that idea of community symbiosis. So we're going to shift to... There's going to be a global shift several million years ago to oxygenic water cleaving photosynthesis, which freed bacteria from their dependence on the limited amount of reduced sulfur, iron, manganese, hydrogen, and methane. So there, this is a question, right? In the previous chapters, we kind of threw out the whole methane atmosphere, methane ammonia atmosphere, because we said, well, that probably isn't what the real atmosphere looked like. It probably was heavy in our in our organic mo molecules of carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, like that. 
So the original atmosphere was probably heavier in organic molecules than it was in this ammonia methane soup that the Miller experiment kind of exploded from 1952. But we kind of de we determined that that Miller experiment probably didn't have a lot of bearing because the original atmosphere didn't look like that. So in this chapter, they're they're kind of saying that that wasn't quite right. The archaean atmosphere may have had this sulfur, iron, manganese, hydrogen, methane atmosphere. It just may be in different proportions than we had previously thought, like that Miller had thought. So this was a question for me of like, how are we countenancing the the ammonia methane atmosphere from the early part of the century? So we're saying, okay, methane ammonia didn't happen. But then actually methane ammonia could have happened, right? I mean, if it was a nitrogen-rich atmosphere with some hydrogen and some carbon, I mean, that sounds like methane ammonia. So that was a question that I had for this. In the biotic versus abiotic determination, this one I included, this is page 66. This one I included because they're using a biotic versus abiotic determination by structural fractals. So they're evaluating the branching and the layering, the scaling of these mathematical fractals to determine biotic versus abiotic, right? So biotic, fractal, abiotic, crystalline. That's really interesting to me because you, you can think of a whole bunch of biotic examples that have this crystalline structure, but that crystalline structure can be reproducible, right? So it can grow in a different scale than, than just a straight inorganic chemistry. So this one was really interesting to me. It, it hinted at a mathematical description of life that we haven't quite talked about before, right? We've talked a lot about metabolism, we've talked a lot about biochemical synthesis, blah, blah, blah. But the idea of fractal reproduction as a structural definition was kind of interesting to me. So there's lots of symbiosis, which argues for a fractal scale of microorganisms that compose macro creatures, right? Like mitochondrial and chloroplasts. And then if we could mathematically represent the individual cells as components of the macro creature, then wouldn't that be a fractal scaling law? So that's page 67. And then if cyanobacteria use heterocysts and special cells that create these anaerobic macro microenvironments, aren't those essentially just acting as organelles? So, so this goes back to scaling, right? If we are composed of cyanobacteria, bacteria are composed of heterocysts, heterocysts are composed of, right? Isn't that just a fractal scale? And then um, the example of the chloroplasts were derived directly from those cyanobacteria through a primary endosymbiosis. So again, I'm, I'm arguing that maybe if there was a, a mathematical way to represent kind of that symbiosis interaction, you would look at a biotic fractal, which would be a very cool structural definition because I feel like you would then be able to expand how you look at life and that would kind of get rid of some of those biases that we have from our previous chapter. So Prochlorococcus, the genus, is responsible for 30 to 80 percent of all primary production in the world's oceans and this was only discovered in 1988 and I included that one because it's interesting, it's cool, right? Uh, 80 percent of the world's oceans production but then I also included it because if we're talking about what life is and if we're talking about how to describe it, then these, these tiny 
these tiny organisms that could be passed by and ignored shouldn't be, right? So here's this tiny thing that we didn't even pay attention to to 1988, and it's responsible for up to 80% of the ocean's primary production. So if we were looking at a scaling law, for example, a fractal or biotic scaling law, we would probably have a very different perspective on our own Earth. Anyway, that's food for thought for the recitation, but I wanted to include that because it was kind of a, a stimulating idea for us. So uh, fractal topology as a definition, a true definition of structural life. So let's go, land plants and fungi have appeared about 700 million years ago, so we're kind of moving back up the timeline here. And they evolved from this uh, Karyophytes, which is a freshwater green algae about 600 million years ago. And bryophytes, we can divide land plants and fungi into bryophytes and tracheophytes. So bryophytes are non-vascular plants without distinctive water conducting tissues. These are like liverworsts. So the earliest land plant that we know of is 450 million years ago, and that's a liverwort. The tracheophytes use phloem, and they're vascular plants. So I like to think of the tracheophytes as having a trachea, right? Like they're breathing, vascular plants. Yeah. So leaves with broad lamina only evolved in response to a pronounced decline in atmospheric CO2 during the Devonian period, which was approximately 410 to 363 million years ago. We're on page 68 of Snow. Fungi came before the first vascular plants arose, and the fungus-plant symbiosis, the endophytic and mycorrhizal, were essential in getting land plants to grow, page 69. Now, I picked this out because obviously this goes directly into my thesis, so fantastic, right? Here we're talking about the first steps of life, and that is directly tied into these, these ecosystem communities of plants, fungi, and bacteria. Within 50 million years of the first fungus plants communities that we just talked about, uh, plants would dominate terrestrial life and solve all associated challenges. And remember, it's not just the plants, it's the plants supported by these bacterial and fungal communities. So these plants develop leaves with stomata, uh, fluid transport, they're able to grow at height, they have a respiratory exchange of gases, and they're sexual or spore-bearing organisms. And this creates cellulose. So cellulose is half of all phytomass on the earth is pretty incredible. So gymnosperms, plants with seeds exposed on the surface of cone scales. These are conifers, cycads, 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 maybe cycads, uh, ginkgo phytes, um, and they're the dominant plant forms around 200 million years ago. Our first angiosperm or flowering plant is Archaeofructus about 140 million years ago. Photosynthesis used to be seen as just a CO2 fixation with an O2 evolution, but it's much more complex. So photosynthesis is energized by both red and blue light. It can breathe in and out. Um, it has C3 and C4 carbon sequestration patterns. So we're gonna talk about that. The basis of it is Rubisco managed. So Rubisco, an enzyme, can act as an acarboxylate or an oxygenase. When it acts as a carboxylate, it fixes CO2 to a 1,5-biphosphate, and that's called RUBP, and that creates two molecules of 3-phosphoglycate. This is necessary for the plant, right? The plant has to have this to survive. When it acts as an oxygenase, however, it binds O2, and it becomes RUPB, sure, 
and it fixates those three phosphoglycates, glycerates, I'm sorry, three phosphoglycerates plus two phosphoglycerates to create a, CO, uh, a carbon oxidative cycle. And this is not necessary for the plant, right? So this is just a way to get that gas differential for the plant to breathe, which I thought was really interesting. So this is kind of like the first example where you have a true biochemical process, right? You're, you're creating a differential to allow for breathing, to allow for space for metabolism. So photorespiration may protect C3 plants from photooxidation for those species in higher intensity light. Uh, photorespiration is conducted, by is conducted by mitochondria in the leaves. So it took a while for that symbiosis to, to work itself out. C3 plants need 900 to 1200 moles of water, sometimes up to 4000 moles, to fix a single mole of carbon dioxide. So it takes a lot of water per carbon dioxide to make this happen. And again, we're not really sure how it does. I mean, there's some quantum mechanics and there's some chicanery that goes on in those chloroplasts um, that makes the transition from light into an ADP, ATP transferase, like, very complicated. Um, but let's talk about efficient water use. So a C4 process, and we're on page 72 here, C4 process does not use Rubisco. Instead, it uses a phosphenyl pyruvate carboxylase, which is a PEP. And PEP has a much higher photosynthetic efficiency and a much higher CO2 affinity than Rubisco. So it's a it's much more efficient process. So that PEP goes through the mesophyll cells to create oxal acetate, which then creates malate which then goes to the chloroplasts of the bundle sheath cells, which then can have, which then can recover CO2 by carboxylation in the C3 cycle. So you're having, you know, the C4 cycle is a little bit of added steps onto the C3 cycle. So let's see. C4 was dominant by 6 million years ago, but rising CO2 levels may shift that back towards C3. So because CO2 is becoming so much more plentiful, plants don't have to work as hard to be able to grab it out of the air, right? So you can see a shift back to a C3 type of plant. And C3s are, again, uh, kind of the old school, old school plants. C4s tend to be corn, sugarcane, sorghum, things like that. There is yet another way for plants to be able to metabolize energy, and that's called the Crassulixian <coughs> Acid Metabolism, CAM. These are in succulents. These breathe in CO2 at night and convert them to CO4 acids um, during the day when they can close their stomatas. So it's like holding your breath for the plants. So they're able to do the gas exchange at night to be able to retain more moisture as opposed to during the day where they're just going to like hemorrhage this water. Um, to be able to create the, the gas exchange. Atmospheric CO2 uh, has created biosynthesis with oxidation of simple inorganic compounds, and it is limited to prokaryotes. So the idea of autotrophic atmospheric CO2 biosynthesis is a prokaryotic deal. Other stuff requires 
special organelles and ribosomes and heterotrophy and all kinds of energy changes. Nitrifying bacteria are the only creature that can convert ammonia to nitrate to nitrite to nitrate, which is required for all plants. And they're usually obligatory chemolithotrophs. They work best between 30 and 35 degrees C. And that is interesting because again, it goes back to like that original atmosphere. So if we have nitrifying bacteria that don't require CO2, in fact, they require ammonia and nitrite and nitrate, and we still use them for water treatment right now. So if we still have all those, that family, like nitrobacter, which can do both, right? Nitrobacter is not obligatory. Then how, I mean, it kind of argues for that little warm pool ammonia methane universe, I think. There is a group of chemolithotrophs that use carbon monoxide instead, pretty rare, but they do exist. So let's talk about heterotrophy. So heterotrophy is the breakdown of sugars, ester bonds, which are lipids, and amides, which are proteins. And there are three strategies for oxidizing these organic molecules. There's aerobic glycolysis, there's anaerobic fermentation, and there's dissimilatory anaerobic oxidation. And all of those usually require O2 as their electron acceptor to the tune of about negative 2,870 kilojoules per mole. So it's very energy intensive. We're on page 77, by the way. Methanogens can even digest things like hexadecane, which is an N16H34. So these are very complex organic molecules that can be um, broken down in the presence of, of oxygen. Consumed substrates are hugely diversified. So we have everything from uric acid to any sort of biomass. And then cryptobiosis, which is dramatically reducing or suspending metabolism, provides resistance to starvation, tremendously long survival, like to the tune of 250 million year old halo tolerant spore forming bacterium found in a brine inclusion and halite crystals in New Mexico. And that brings up the question, why do they have to die at all? Which is a great question. <laughs> yeah, like, I, don't, I don't know why they have to die at all. Maybe the bacteria that we're seeing now are just clones of these ancient, ancient types that have been preserved forever and ever and ever, right? Heterotrophs are, can be broken down into ectotherms and endotherms. The ectotherms have a higher zool mass of proactivity, so there's more of them. Endotherms, though, have a portability of a constant thermal environment, so they can take their little life support systems wherever they go. This is a really high energy cost, which limits the size, um, but they have the ability to locomate, locomotate. They can move. <laughs> Um, and they also have aerobic capacity, significantly more aerobic capacity than uh, ectotherms. Uh, and this has given rise, to these two different types of, of creatures have given rise to sexual versus asexual reproduction. I mean, sexual gets all the credit, right, because it's exciting and fun and humans seem to care about it for some reason. But asexual is actually a really popular method of reproduction, especially in uh, insects so and some plants. So there's, there's a lot of, I don't know, I think there's a lot of flexibility in like how you could define successful reproduction techniques and sexual, sexual has some problems, right? I mean, there's a lot of gene mutations and there's a lot of failures, um, but it does have greater diversity. So let's see, uh, just as a reminder, on page 81, we have a review of the Linnaeus classification system. So that's kingdom. 
phylum, class, order, family, genus, and species. Um, I included Daphnia obturosa in this, the water flea, because it has chloroplasts in its gut, which I did not know about, but it is a really common indicator of low oxygen conditions in water treatment systems. So I thought that was cool that you could that it actually has chloroplasts in its gut. So it's a lot closer to an algae than a flea necessarily. But you can use it in, as both. It can be used as an indicator in both families, right? It's kind of a, a tie-in. So another way of classification, we have uh, some different ways of viewing the family tree. And one of those is to view it into these convenient buckets. They're archaea, bacteria, and eukarya. And they're most easily defined by genetic sequences of DNA. So if you have 16S, that's prokaryotes. And if you have an 18S, that's a eukaryote. Um, and that DNA classification seems to be much more accurate than kind of the visual structural classifications that we have been using. Although, according to the book, that has created some pretty weird vitriol amongst classification or taxonomists, which I didn't quite understand why any of that was important. I mean, I understand that's important, but I don't understand why some of the scientists were backbiting each other and getting all ridiculous about it. So yeah, let's talk about RNA. So on page 84, the uh, the people who are interested in an RNA DNA world, right, where they're looking at the genetic components of animals, not just their topology, what they look like. Our RNA is a very good biological information clock. It's ancient, it's found in all living species conserved in both structure and function. It's very slow to change. There's no evidence of lateral transfer between species. Um, and it's easy-ish to isolate. So you can really track back a lot of species uh, derivations from what their rRNA looks like. I included one little interesting bit, two little interesting bits. The first is that there's a thermoacidophile that exists in self-heating coal refuse piles that have pH of less than two. And there are thermoplasmic acid, acid thermoplasma acidophilium. And I included that again because if we're talking about what life looks like, who would expect to see life in a pH 2 pile of hazardous waste, right? Another little interesting bit. So archaean, the, the archaean genome is composed of much more unique genes. So it has a greater diversity of genetic material. And the rRNA phylogenetic organization approach really responds well to that, right? So if you have this diversity of genetic differences, it gives you a lot of room to play around with how you classify them. So different environmental conditions could select for a new tree of life in this case. So if you look at the archaea genome, they do have introns and they do have um, the genetic capability to deal with this huge variety of environmental conditions, and it may just be purely accident, or not accident, but the genes that were selected were the only ones that function well in their existing terrestrial environment. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the terrestrial environment is the only way that they can exist, right? In a different environment, those different genes could be activated and it could manipulate the genetic code to create that second genesis of life that we were talking about in the McKay, um, McKay paper. And there's a quote. So 
It is, quote, as if Archaea were preparing to become eukaryotes. This is on page 85. And I thought that was interesting because it's, it's almost like the Archaea with their diverse genetic sequences are like these little building blocks, like monomers, that then can be strung together to create these peptides of, of actual critters, right? So they're just waiting to be put together in the right environmental conditions that would then create the second genesis. Um, and some examples of that, right? We have the hyperthermophilic that exist at greater than 100 degrees C metabolisms. Um, and then unlike bacteria, archaea are, have different organelles. They have flagella. They have different antibiotic sensitivities. So they're really kind of their own little world. Uh, they're very responsive to their environmental conditions under a wide variety of environmental conditions. So here you've got, you know, like I said, these little building blocks that are just waiting to be formed into a new form of eukaryotic life. So they are abundant with bacteria. They exist with bacteria and fungus. They can be single species aggregates. They can exist as bacterial consortia. Um, and because they're so amenable to existing with other forms of life, that's kind of led to a huge criticism of this categorization because it's hard to tell the difference, I think. But again, I'm not really sure why everybody, why the scientists were so um, critical of this, because it seems like a elegantly simple approach to classification requirements. Um, but anyway, so this is an evolutionary process, not ev and the response. So Worse's response to this criticism, saying that oh, you know, because archaea exist with bacteria and fungi and all these other animals, then you know you can't tell the difference essentially. So Worse's response was. It's an evolutionary process. The evolutionary outcomes can only really be seen genetically. And this is on page 86. So I think what he's saying there is that um, the idea that these other taxonomists are consumed with what the creature looks like, you know, the visual appearance and like its behavior with other creatures, because they're so fixated on that as an end state, like that's the only thing the creature can ever do, like that is the definition of the creature's namesake, um, they're missing out on, on the process part, right? So if you see it as only one state and you don't see the genetic movement, the lateral transfers, the, um, the building blocks of those monomers, how they fit together, then you're going to be obsessed with the wrong things. You're going to be looking at an end state when you actually should be looking at the journey. So I think that's what it says. And to follow on that, these molecular classifications do not converge on any clearly quote-unquote identifiable tree with sequential branching, which seems to be the unspoken assumption of the taxonomists and biologists, right? We, we like this idea of a clearly defined tree. But it may be more of a gradient. It may be more of just kind of a gentle ramp of mush, <laughs> you know, like, and the ramp, it just goes from simple to complex. It doesn't necessarily have anything to do with, with an end state or a pinnacle of life or, you know, like most world systems put humans as the pinnacle of existence. And, eh, all right, well, humans are pretty cool. Don't get us wrong. But like on this, on this scale of complexity, um, you know, we're all kind of jumbled up there in this mass of, of stuff. 
And eukaryotes especially are chimeras. I mean, they contain genetic material from a huge variety of ancestral lineages. So we're not like one thing. We're many, 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 many things and constantly changing, constantly exchanging information, whatever. It's just a community of primitive cells. So we haven't even accessed our own terrestrial habitat to understand how those communities of cells really interact with each other or what some other communities look like. And I thought that was pretty interesting. So we haven't looked at crustal rocks. We haven't looked at ocean sediments. We haven't even looked at rainforest canopies that all have these tremendous environmental conditions just waiting for unusual forms of life to, to pop out of them. And we haven't really looked at it. So some key factors for hyperdiversity. Um, our creatures of interest will probably be small. They'll probably have metamorphisms, so they can change their shape. Probably herbivores. They'll probably have specialized parasitism and rapid mobility. Um, and at least here on Earth, insects fulfill most of those, right? So insects are these tremendously successful arthropods. 90% of all arthropods are insects. So when we're thinking about our typical, you know, diversity of life, how we see the family tree now, you know, we always come back to these catastrophic events, particularly now because we're being faced with anthropogenic climate change that is definitely going to be one of the major geologic changes that will go into the Earth's record. So there exists a new tension between catastrophism, which is discontinuities and sudden qualitative changes, versus uniformitism, which is the gradual incremental evolutionary shift. And I guess that scientists kind of fall into these two categories, but I'm not exactly sure why, because they don't seem to be mutually exclusive, right? You, you can have a uniformitism type of evolutionary change for millions of years and then get hit by a meteor. And I mean, so the scalability, I think the time frame is the only thing that's genuinely different about that. So you just have a scaled down evolutionary change in catastrophism versus a long term, like scaled up version in uh, uniformitism. But I don't really see that they're that different. I, I think the idea of basing everything on a human time scale is kind of weird anyway. So, sure. So, quote for you, surface life has come very close to extinction on a number of occasions, and yet the biosphere eventually emerged from these global close calls and from other less momentous catastrophes richer, page 89. So we're going to talk about some of those catastrophes. We've got Snowball Earth, which was minus 50 degrees C average, which is astonishing to me. Um, oceans were under one kilometer of ice. And still, we see oscillatorian cyanobacteria survive there, which is pretty cool. So there's not necessarily a strong link between climate and evolution. It seems like creatures can survive kind of through anything and under most conditions. Mm. And I'm going to, so this is just a note for the class. This is an administrative note. So everything seems to be based heavily on the Drake equation. So for prior to the exam, I would suggest that we go through the Drake equation and just, you know, memorize some of those key constituents. And then we'll go through, you know, each section of the Drake equation to kind of be able to present a reasonable argument, you know, depending on if he provides like an essay quote or essay test or if we'll need to do logical reasoning to support certain ideas or, you know, stuff like that. So I think it's a Drake equation based class that 
will require the memorization of some key like formation rates for stars and things like that and then the rest of it can just be uh, logical reasoning associated with with those variables okay so a quick review of biochemistry we have um, amino acids which are composed of three nucleotides this is a triplet codon RNA can function both as an enzyme and as an information storage molecule so ribosomes are RNA that have been like crystallized almost or protein that's been crystallized and the structure is stable which allows RNA to copy copy and replicate itself but RNA can be a protein right it can have a three-dimensional or tertiary shape and become catalytically active which makes it an enzyme so it's kind of a Swiss army knife right like you can have a single strand which is stores some information you can double that strand so you have a hairpin turn um, and that strand can actually provide blueprints right so that's complete information you can twist it you can bond it to itself creating tertiary structures that act like proteins kind of exactly like proteins um, and then you can have those proteins interact with each other they can become catalytically active so there are three kinds so there are six main functional classes of enzymes oxidoreductase transferase hydrolyse hydrolases lyases isomerases and ligases um, some other functional proteins are like hemoglobin defense molecules of the immune system hormones and then of course structural proteins so this isn't even really a review it's just a reminder that those exist there is a theory that RNA was the molecule of life and did not require DNA or protein for millions and millions of years which is one of the reasons why the new classification system based on RNA has kind of gained some popularity right this is the RNA world theory uh, and this is an interesting bit so when we're defining life life requires a quote inside and quote outside to create differentials so the phospholipid bilayer is important because it it's the boundary between environment and the little bubble right and that little bubble can make its own life support it can make its own environment within itself and the difference between outside and inside creates communication it creates a process so now you have a physical mechanism of creating communication of information between environment and an individual as these little bubbles which I thought was very cool it's the boundary between the self and the universe and this gets into some deep like philosophical concepts that I'm actually really interested in exploring so I put this in here because I see a lot of parallels between concept of self especially from Buddhism and like boundary conditions in the universe from a mathematical perspective so lipids are usually our um, main boundary condition creators at least from a physical sense so again phospholipid bilayer this is a hydrophobic and hydrophilic molecule which is all in one structure the it provides enough boundary conditions for vesicles and life's first bubbles of chemical reactions they were the first membranes now I also saw a parallel here in the shape of stars so like the way that phospholipid bilayers um, create vesicles and the way that the vesicles create chemical reactions within them like dense nucleus um, orbiting organelles 
like a lot of parallels to star formations in that, which kind of goes back to that idea of um, fractal representation. So a mathematical theory of life based on fractal interactions is really appealing to me. So we'll talk about like cellulose, which is a 1,4 linkage of beta-glucose monomers, and it's most abundant on the planet macromolecule. It's in comets and space. It's all over the place. So the monomers associated with cellulose are so common, um, they're kind of everywhere. And I included that because, again, if we think about molecules as monomers, if we think about them as part of that fractal gradient, it really goes back to defining life and defining our understanding of what life could be. So just a quick review. This is our current dogma of how we think life exists. DNA with information. RNA transfers that information to proteins. Proteins create metabolism through functions. That metabolism generates monomers which are then biosynthesized to polymers. The polymers link together to form tissues. The tissues link together to form organs. The organs link together to form organisms. And organisms are open systems that require energy, gases, water. They replicate, they mutate, they evolve. And this is common to all life as we know it, at least here on Earth. But again, look at how, look at how scalable that is. Look at how fractal that is. So I'm, I'm really kind of possessed with this idea of fractal, fractal representation of life geometry from a structural standpoint. Um, and I don't know if we've addressed that as one of the definitions quite yet, but I'm really, I'm really possessed with that idea. So those are the notes for Chapter 3. I'll complete the recitation and post that in a different audio file. The Great Filter, Robin Hansen, 1998. This is recitation number three, Sarah Drain. Hansen starts off with exploring the idea of an exploding or expanding life bubble, where galactic civilizations are not just one lonely voice in the dark, but rather humanity could potentially have a bright future, with the implication to exist as or close to how we exist now as a goal only expanded across the extant universe. So this would be seeing humanity as a pinnacle of life. So he goes on to think that the chances to exist in this form, the current human form that we have now, may be bleaker if we were able to identify extraterrestrial life, but that doesn't necessarily exclude expanding lasting life that looks very different from what we expect. So the premise of this, this great filter, the idea is determining what humanity's place in the gradient between dead matter and living matter looks like. If we're on the pinnacle, if we're on the end, um, then the likelihood is that we won't survive in one case. On another side, if we are a pinnacle, if we have truly mastered, I guess, the game of life or the, the challenges of colonial expansion, which is what we'll go on for the rest of the paper to discuss, then our odds of success increase the more we dominate. So the remainder of the paper seems to be questioning what this expanding life for humans is gonna look like, whether we are going to fall on the bottom side of the filter 
where we're going to be approaching dead matter, or whether we're going to be able to reach this kind of idealized version of constantly expanding life in our existent form, spreading to the very edges of the universe. And there are a couple, he, so he goes through some of the disciplines. So his main argument is that because this is an interdisciplinary science, we're gonna look at a whole bunch of different ideas for where humans are on that gradient. And the ideas themselves are, one of them is wrong or more of them are wrong. Somebody's wrong. Um, and that's a particularly interesting concept to me. So I'm gonna talk about that a little bit later on when he brings it up and we're gonna go into that because he has some very, very clear ideas about what humanity is gonna look like, about what the survivability of humanity is like, and what intelligence and civilizations are gonna look like in this idea of the Great Filter. Whether we are between the dead and the living, whether we won't exist, or whether we will exist across all stars and solar systems and have a tremendous long-lived virtually indefinite explosion of colonization that will that will run from here to the end of the universe so he starts off with some descriptions about what he thinks life is the definition of life the idea of what life does so what are the key behavioral impacts of life and then he relates that back to humans right so we're looking at purely human values in in promoting our own colonization. So he says that all known life seems to have a dispersal phase with non-trivial mutations, sexual mixing, this is on page one. And I, I wanna bring that up because that's just, well, that's just not right, is it? I mean, we spent the past couple chapters talking about life doesn't have to disperse. It doesn't have to be mobile. Um, the mutations can be very trivial, trivial um, introns are key to phenotypic expression under different environmental conditions under catastrophic events right and that's going to be a key point of his argument so an intron that doesn't necessarily have a, a meaningful mutation could be extremely meaningful when the environment changes so already you know we're looking at a couple of his his life definitions and arguments and saying well we we already know that that's not accurate so life doesn't have to move life doesn't have to have non-trivial mutations Sexual mixing is not required. There are plenty of species here on Earth that are tremendously successful that do not require sexual mixing. So we've got lateral gene transfer, we've got scaled reference sizes, which means that a species can occupy multiple ecological niches and one niche can be home to many different dimensions of occupation, right? So the idea that you have this dispersal mechanism of creatures into virgin territory or virgin resources, well, that's not, that's a, that's a pretty big simplification, right? So the interactions between species don't just have to be dispersed into empty space or empty territory. They can be symbiotic parasitism, they can be mutualism, they can, ha they can colonize each other just the same as they would be colonizing, you know, potentially new resources. Okay, so he doesn't, he doesn't explore that. His main argument is, you know, our life, humans, we are going to disperse, we are going to have sexual mixing, we are going to have non-trivial mutations, and we are going to exist in the same dimensionality that we exist right now. So going forward, he talks about phenotypic expression, uh, and he talks about how humans 
are going to try and maintain this phenotypic expression. Later on in the paper, he'll talk a little bit about how social scientists seem to view the current phenotype of humans as something to hold on to, right? That we need to maintain this human-centric body and vision right now. So one of the arguments that we're gonna see going forward is that this human body type needs to be maintained somehow through genetic engineering or through some sort of top-down social control. So the premise of this great filter is that humans will exist in this form and they will go out and they will colonize the universe. And his main question is, uh, are we gonna live or are we gonna die when we try and do that? And if we're even capable of, of getting off the gate, out of the gate, so to speak. So he starts with the evolutionary theory, the idea that humans are going to colonize, right? So, so first he said he gives us our definition of what humans are to him and what he sees them going forward into the world, into the universe to do. And then he goes into what the evolutionary theory says the explosion of life is, right? So what does that colonization of going out past the filter look like? And it basically implies that humans are going to multiply to their maximum growth rate, and they're only going to be limited by FTL travel, right? So the physical structure of the universe is the only thing limiting us to, to colonizing all of those ecological niches in this form with this system. And that if we do it correctly, depending on whether we're special or whether life arises uh, more commonly, uh, we'll be able to colonize more effectively and we'll be able to reach these maximum growth rates. So he says that there are going to be some assumptions here, right? When humans go out and colonize, we're going to have an aggressive monoculture. We're going to be species dominant. So humans are going to colonize based on human needs. Um, and that those colonizers are going to change the places that they colonize to fit those needs. So we are agents of change in this. Uh, and that that is actually, depending on how we look at it, that could increase or decrease our survival on this filter spectrum. And that fundamentally life will disturb its home and change its environment to meet its needs. So the example, he's saying that colonists may enclose or dissemble stars, they may restructure galaxies, that we would see physical evidence of life restructuring those environments. Now he uses this argument a little bit in a mirror form to start off with, to be able to place us on that great filter spectrum kind of right off the bat. And he basically says, if we saw these kinds of restructured galaxies, if we saw these great engineering projects, we would know that life was common, that we were just one more step in the great gradient between death and life pervasiveness. And it would not, this would not be a question, right? Because if we could see that colonists had already been here, we would know that we would either be part of the panspermic spread of those colonists or we would be a self-arising addition to the, the permeation of life throughout the universe, which would be very common. But the relative pristine nature of our solar system implies that alien life has not reached us, right? We don't see any of those major engineering projects. We don't see additional life forms. We don't have communication. None of those things exist. So because we're assuming that the human experience of changing our environment and of messing things up, of, of being messy and of being loud and, you know, ex changing our environment to fit what human needs are, you know, turning that on its head and saying we can assume that other species would do exactly the same thing because that's the nature of life. 
And because we haven't seen that, therefore humans are probably a special case arising. So we're obviously not on that far end of the great filter where life permeates the entire universe. We're obviously somewhere in the middle. And he goes on to kind of explore this idea of pinpointing where we are on that gradient. And so he says, well, we're going to assume that for any life to exist in that gradient, there are going to be nine things that they're going to need. The first is the right star system, including the right organic molecules. Second is reproductive something, so an agent of reproduction. In this case, he uses RNA as an example. Uh, number three would be simple or prokaryotic single cell life. Number four would be complex or archaic and eukaryotic single cell life. Sexual reproduction is number five. Number six is multi-cell life. Number seven is tool-using animals with big brains. Number eight is where we are now, we being humans, right? So we basically take our human model of civilization and intelligence and then translate that to all civilizations, right? So we're making kind of a big leap on that assumption. And then finally, uh, colonization or the life explosion, quote unquote, right? So this is where we can no longer just be restrained to a single planet. We now have the capability to go throughout the entire universe and we will expand at the maximum growth rate because that is what life does. So this is his path to a life explosion. This is what he would see civilizations as doing if they were on the far, the top end of the great filter gradient. Uh, and we would not see this if we were on the bottom end of the great filter. So, I mean, fundamentally he's asking, what is the difference between simple dead stuff and that explosive life? So the filter itself refers to that gradient, dead stuff versus permeation of life everywhere. And since the universe seems to be basically dead, does that mean that the explosive colonization is impossible, right? Because humans haven't done it yet, does that mean that it's not possible since we are kind of basing this explosion on the human experience? Or if there are many paths to life, if it's not about the human experience, what does that mean for that filter? How does that change the gradient? How does that change our understanding of what life is and what our place within the gradient actually looks like? And if there are other paths to life, how do we find them? Right? We have a lot of assumptions right now that are kind of discipline specific and he'll go through those at the end of the paper. But we have a lot of assumptions right now that kind of focus on our understanding of biology, our understanding of sociology, our understanding of physics. And there's nothing that says that that's a thing, right? That's, that's one concept of a fundamental law of reality, but there can be many interpretations to those fundamental laws as we see with quantum physics every day. So if there are some of those other interpretations, how do we even put them on the spectrum, right? But he says that's, we're not gonna look at that right now. So we're gonna assume that those nine steps are kind of the, the fundamental qualifiers for civilization. So we're gonna stick to what we know. We're gonna use the human experience as the basis for understanding this great filter. And we're gonna start with the Drake equation. So we're gonna start looking at all those disciplines and all those integrated hypotheses. And the Drake equation is a great place to start. So he basically says, you know, how do we know all of these things? We can make some assumptions and we've got some optimists that statistically have broken down these variables in, in very achievable kind of soundbite form. And those show really great numbers, right? From a statistical standpoint, 
that is a legitimately great play to show the pervasiveness of life. We are on the top end of the filter. We're not special. We're, we're just one more component of a great, ever-evolving slew of life forms. And the only question is, are we new? Are we part of a panspermic explosion? You know, this, the, that's the only real question is just how we fit into this overall explosion of life. And then he also talks about some technological optimists. So he says, okay, so let's assume that the Drake equation maybe took some liberties and maybe we don't understand some of those variables. Well, we also have the technological optimists who say that we have all of these machines and these learning algorithms and these nanobots that can take us anywhere we wanna go. So even if the Drake equation was wrong and we were actually on the bottom end of the spectrum, we still have all the tools and intelligence we need to make ourselves colonizers of the universe, to start the great explosion. And both of these try and extrapolate relatively low likelihood statistical events into these galaxy-wide scales, and both of them kind of promote an idea that the seemingly improbable should almost be a given, and that humanity will almost inevitably spread to other solar systems and galaxies just from a numbers perspective. And this explosive colonization is just the nature of life itself and species. So we can use our human experience to extrapolate out to, to this fundamental need for life to just explode everywhere and take over the, the galaxy. So however, even fans of stability, and this is a quote by the way, even fans of stability should be concerned about the implications of humanity not living long enough or free enough to have a one in a million chance, for example, that any descendant of ours will escape to colonize space. So he's saying, all right, we have all these numbers. So statistically, we should be either part of a great explosion or we should be the start of a great explosion or humanity will survive. But then you look at what humanity actually does and that's, and that's a problem, right? So from, from just, and we're going to go further into this later on, but humanity keeps making choices that kill itself. We have an inability for humans to behave rationally or within their self-interest or to even understand longer timescales than the human timescale. So making rational decisions in a time frame that doesn't revolve around like the human experience of today, tomorrow, and next year, even five and 10 year lifetimes are... Or, or choice timelines are kind of out of the scope for most people. So you have this, this self-interested, this very limited time scale creature who's not able to kind of see in these galactic scale timeframes. And we're hardly unified, right? The human species doesn't perform as a single body. There's, there's way too much diversity in human thought to even approach like some of the wide scale, thoughtful, rational, decisions that would have to happen to make us capable of protecting ourselves or of not killing ourselves, right? So we're going to talk about that. But from a statistical standpoint, it seems more than probable that humans would reach out and start this colonization experience, that humans would be part of a, of a rich life experience across the galaxy. But there are some mitigating factors. So one, we can't work together. Two, we can't think long-term or even on really short-term scales. Um, and then we also may have reached humanity's limit. So he brings up that God and Leslie imply that 
we as a species may be at carrying capacity. Now, whether that's because of the Earth's resources or because of our own weaknesses, obviously we, we can't really tell, we can't really split one from the other, um, but that is a possibility that maybe humans, the number of humans won't reach that explosive stage. We won't go to our maximum growth because we can't. A portion of our, our speciation individuality just says, this is it. Once you reach a certain number, you stop growing, which is, which is very common in community-based organisms, right? So he talks about a rational optimism for humanity's future. So we're assuming that we're probably somewhere in the middle on the great filter scale. And again, assuming that space colonization and the life explosion is the optimal future for our species, right? We, we assume that being on the top of the filter is really great and that humans expanding into to this explosion of life is the optimal solution. That requires that we be special somehow. So it requires that we be unique or rare or we are the first arising in the great void. It requires that humans be um, different and special. And it is worth pointing out that if we are, or even if we're not, in both cases, that may lead to a pretty bleak future for humanity. And this is on page five. So he says, since we're likely to die out with a single catastrophic event, we almost need that life explosion to keep our species going as a self-defense mechanism. And in the event that we can't explode, we'll likely go extinct because we're just not survivable in our current weak, limited state. So he brings up a supernova example, um, but, the, but the point of it really is, regardless of which direction we choose, we're a vulnerable species until we actually hit the top of the filter and create that that life permeability. So if life were common and easily quote-unquote explodable, uh, we should have seen it by now. And since we're not, we have to be something special. How we're special, we're not quite sure yet. Are we on the bottom? Are we sort of in the middle? Do we need to explode to survive? Can we even explode? Or are we just condemned to our own limited existence right now? So Hansen calls out for this question, he calls out some of our own special proclivities that are unique to very few animals, right? We self-harm, we destroy our own ecosystems, we um, have a propensity for violence. And in this case, it would be at the risk for economic failure, ecosystem failure. We do these things regardless of our self-interest. And we seem to be unable to stop them in some cases, right? So our reliance on fossil fuels, even though we know it's killing us, we, we can't seem to take ourselves off the path to economic growth and to some of these soft social sciences or some of these constructed values of humanity. They become so important that we, we literally cannot change them even when they're killing us. So, at this point in the paper, he starts looking at our assumptions of what humanity is. And so he breaks it down by discipline. So he says, we're gonna talk about all of the, the things that we know as humans. We're gonna start with biology, we're gonna go to physics, and then we're gonna talk about some of the social sciences, some of the soft things that we seem to do, regardless of our biology, regardless of what physical reality is, we seem to do them because we, we have to do them as a species 
for reasons that we've made up. And he uses the title, It Matters Who's Wrong, in this section, which I found very interesting. So it seems like he's presenting quite a few assumptions as if they were true. And those assumptions go to what humans are, what our species physically looks like, the space we occupy, the tendencies that we have, the size of our brains. Um, he talks about what life explosions look like, right? So he, his vision of a colonized universe or of a, of a top-end great filter life permutation is a very specific vision. So there's not a lot of flexibility in how, how we see that. And then about the value and purpose of colonization. So, so he makes a lot of assumptions about what it means for humans to survive and thrive in that filter. And there are some things that, that don't quite add up, and we'll go through those one by one. The one in particular I was struck with but was from Worse's comment, uh, and this is from Smill Chapter 3. And Worse implies that he views evolution as a process. There is no point necessarily to it. A fixation on the phenotypical or on the structural patterns that you see at some point don't necessarily have anything to do with evolution itself, right? The genetic changes, the physical changes, just by looking at something, you don't necessarily see into the heart of where it came from and, and what it's doing, right? And I thought about that quite a bit when I was reading this portion of the Hansen paper, because Hansen has some very clear ideas about final states, and I, and I was struck with the worst quote about evolution being a process. So to take a snapshot of it at any point in the, in the record of that organism is not a complete story, and it may not have anything to do with what that organism is physically interacting with the universe as. So Hansen's comments seem to imply that humans are not really part of this evolutionary process anymore. He, he seems to say that because we've reached this point of intelligence and consciousness, we will control our own evolution and we will control the choice of whether to colonize space or not. But considering that we're made up of a primitive community, right, to borrow another quote from Smill, a primitive community of archaea, fungi, bacteria, parasites, all the rest of it, I'm not sure that's the case. Survivability is tied to evolutionary processes, right? I mean, genetic and phenotypic expression is unique to that community's experience, both its internal experience and its external experience. So it is possible that we're just the first community to achieve self-actualization of this and insight into the evolutionary theory. But it doesn't mean that we're apart from it. It doesn't mean that we're going to effectively utilize genetic engineering techniques to colonize space, right? That doesn't, that's not a direct one-to-one. -one. And it doesn't mean that we can't create an environment on Earth that's so toxic and so debilitating to life that we wouldn't expand from a biological standpoint, right? We, what's to say that we won't evolve coping mechanisms and survivability strategies to accommodate the toxic environment that we're creating on Earth or to try and escape into a niche habitat 
that we can adapt for under kind of a catastrophism, jump discontinuity evolution that Smill previously described. So it, I think it's relevant that Hansen did not include humanity as a participatory force in this theory of evolution, in this evolutionary theory, I'm sorry. That by participating in the universe, by interacting with it and with others, we're actually shaping the great filter. So it's not an idealized form that just exists outside of everything. We have a part to play in what that great filter looks like. There's no answer, quote unquote, that the great filter is going to provide in, in which someone is right or wrong, but exploring it as an evolving process that are built on the feedback loops and relationships that humans ourselves and all of the other creatures that you know inhabit this biosphere with us, well, we define that. And it's an evolving process, right? So I think there is a strong bias in the Hansen paper th and throughout the paper that humans are the standard. They are outside of the process. They are an independent third party observer. And that is, and that bias uh, reaches all other civilizations, right? Like the human idea of the unbiased observer who is merely interacting with their physical world that is civilization. There cannot be others. Another image of that is not presented in the paper. So anything that needs to be counted as a civilization should achieve parity with the human standard, right? But considering that we've only scratched the surface of dimensionality, of energy, of some of the fundamental laws of the universe, I mean, that seems like a long walk to, to nothing, right? That's not, that's not a thing. He doesn't provide evidence that says that that's a legitimate um, worldview or universe view. So he addresses this himself on page six, where he acknowledges that, you know, simple, plausible models quite often fail to capture the essence of complex phenomena. And he goes on to use some simple statistics. So this is the simple model that he's going to present for us to try and show that humans are the standard by which all civilizations should be measured. And he uses it based on fossil record. So he's counting innovations as a um, statistical variance in the geological record and that the earth seems to follow a loose mathematical pattern or order for the development of life. So the innovations that we're going to talk about uh, are single cell fossils, the rise of O2, um, the Cambrian explosion, brain to body size, overall increase to symbolize intelligence. And I do want to pause here because if we're still using a brain to body size as a measure of intelligence, then there are going to be some really happy misogynists out there. As an anecdotal note, I, I think, I believe most scientists in medicine and biology have a hard time nailing down what intelligence even is, and that there seems to be a greater correlation between the number of neural connections, the amount of white matter, and gray matter folding with intelligent behavior, right, quote unquote intelligent behavior, because we don't know what intelligence actually is. So I'm not fully on board with Hansen's key innovations of life. I don't think they're particularly well backed up. Um, and additionally, he seems very clear that sexual reproduction is the most successful or the most necessary for a, a colonization. But asexual reproduction has been a tremendously successful strategy for plants and insects. And I mean, both of, both of those kingdoms communicate within their own societies. They have chemical and physical signaling. So I'm, I'm not sure how his pinnacle of, of life language 
I'm not sure how human language is all that different from from some of these other, you know, chemical and physical signaling. They seem pretty similar to me, just in a different medium. And he talks about that on page eight. So his step-by-step, -step, quote, innovation model for life starts with complexity, goes to sex, society, cradle, and then finally culminates with language. And, and again, I have, some, I have some reservations about what we're considering language here because the model that he seems to imply that humans are the only ones that have achieved this whole stepped process, um, and I don't, I don't agree with that. So his definition of life and civilization, I think, don't include a lot of the things that we've seen out of uh, chapter three and chapter two in Smill, and like the McKay paper and some other pretty definitive suggestions for, for how life can be viewed. Anyway, so Hansen's model implies that the Earth has about 0.3 billion years left. Uh, so when he gets done with his statistical proof, we have about 0.3 billion years left before some disaster closes the book on life. And again, we're assuming that humans are life and that any disaster will result in just total death because humans can't survive. And then assuming a planet was born around the right star, adding a final probability of humanity destroying itself soon would constitute a model or definition of the great filter in about 11 steps. So, so he summarizes that for us. He says, this is how I view life. This is how I view our place in the great filter. So he goes on to say that recent evidence for Martian life in the 1996 McKay paper, which I, I actually, well, he goes on to say that the recent evidence for Martian life from 1996 may change that model slightly. It would imply that life was pretty easy. So it would move us back up to the top of the great filter and kind of remove some of the vulnerabilities that he started off the first part of the paper going through. And so he says, all right, so let's assume, assume that. Let's say that the biologists are wrong. What, you know, that life was not a special event. We have all these options. We're very resilient. And again, human equate life. So maybe the biologists are wrong. So, well, okay. So maybe the physicists, physicists are wrong. From a physics perspective, space travel might be impossible. So that means we couldn't even colonize. We can't do anything. We're stuck to less than um, light speed for any travel. We might not be able to do any engineering projects in space. So our technological optimists might be way off base. But again, considering that we have been sending probes and people and space shuttles and we're planning to build a, a base on the moon. I mean, okay, it's possible that that could be an utter failure, but since we've had a lot of mechanical interaction with space over the past 50 to 100 years, I would imagine that it's pretty unlikely that the physicists are wrong, especially since they're starting to investigate dark matter, which may kind of change the paradigm about what matter is, what life is, what what we're doing with ourselves. So he says maybe the physicists are wrong, but probably not. And then he goes to social theories. So the main thrust of the social theories is that in order for us to survive as a species, everyone needs to achieve a high level of ethical and spiritual enlightenment. Otherwise, we'll kill each other, and then the Earth, and we'll all die. We'll be at the bottom of the filter. So there seems to be a lot of confusion on how or what to measure when it comes to thinking about societal aggressiveness, quote-unquote, or competitive human populations cooperating to fill stellar niches, with an implication that genetic engineering would be required to allow space colonization, and that would be a top-down process. The government would determine what genetics needed 
genetics were needed, and then we would essentially rebreed the human population outside of evolutionary processes to meet a space need. And that seems unlikely, right? We talked a little bit about that. Because it seems to discount the jump discontinuous or catastrophic evolutionary jumps that we've seen in other species, right? When when we poison our Earth to a certain amount, when the CO2 gets to a certain amount, we see species adapt to those changes, and there's no reason to think that humans would be outside that process. I mean, we are causing the Anthropocene. So our environment that we've made for ourselves is filled with toxins, synthetic chemicals, uh, you know, uh, an expanded electromagnetic radiation from the holes in the ozone and things like that. We've poisoned our air and water. So just like the creatures coming out of the first oxygen atmospheres trying to adapt to these ecological niches, we're, we're doing that. We're going to change in response to what we've created on the Earth. So why wouldn't we self-select for a new kind of human who can tolerate these wider ranges of electromagnetic radiation, toxic exposures, higher CO2 levels? Why would we be different? I don't think we would be. So this devastation scenario is accounted for in the Drake equation. So he goes through some of the variables in the Drake equation with an expected time to civilization collapse and then assumes that there is no arising once societal failure has happened. Um, and Hansen implies that this may be too limited. So we may be we may be discounting civilizations before we need to. His final conclusion is a reiteration of his model of the tri trial and error biological steps, right? So life goes to complexity, which has sex, which creates a society, which develops a cradle of technology um, and civilization, and then develops this language and offer and offers that each step works out to about thirty billion years if-ish. And then assuming 1% of the stars could support all of these steps, he concludes that we only have about a 1% chance of not destroying ourselves soon. So as far as answering his fundamental question of like where humans are on the great filter and is the great filter running out, he seems to imply that we're at the bottom, that uh, we are special and we're probably going to kill ourselves and the great diffusion of life probably isn't going to happen. Uh, and this idea that humans can colonize their way out of their own destruction seems pretty flawed. Um, but I but I was particularly interested in the kind of self-absorption of the human experience. So the idea that the explosion of life had to be a human explosion and that the survivability of the human population as we are right now was the main area of interest of this paper. And I don't think that's necessarily true, right? I think there's a lot of opportunity to have other creatures survive and thrive. Humans can evolve and, and change based on the toxins that we're creating in our own environment. Um, and to project our current values and our current understanding on future lives um, seems a little bit out of the box. So my that those are my conclusions from the paper. Uh, I brought up several of the locations that I have kind of questions about what his assumptions are and why I think they may not be valid. Um, and the main conclusion of it was was genuinely, I don't think humans are outside the evolutionary process. So a lot of the questions and a lot of the assumptions he makes, especially about what a life innovation looks like and what that innovation does for filter, expanding or contracting it, don't seem to be based on a lot other than the human experience and his perception of the human experience. So there's there seems to be some data and some assumptions in there that could definitely be questioned and we can look at it in a different way.
So thank you so much. I'm sorry I went over a little bit on time, uh, but I appreciate the opportunity.